You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Uh, we're wrapping up a study today that has taken the entire fall, and uh, today is just the last day where we are, uh, worked our way through the book of First Peter. And uh, today we're going to actually cover the entire final chapter. Uh, before we do, let me, I forgot to mention, if you're taking your kids to the instruction portion of Grace Kids, you can do that now. And I uh, also want to let you know that because we are growing, uh, the first through fifth grade are now meeting upstairs. So we're now using classes both upstairs and downstairs beginning today. If there's any uh, confusion or if you're not sure where your child goes, uh, Heidi and her team will be out there and they'll help you find your kid's way to their new classroom. Um, we're going to cover chapter 5 today. And in chapter 5, what, what Peter is doing is he's wrapping up this letter that he's written to people who have lived on the margins. These are people who are, uh, he calls elect exiles. That is, they're chosen by God, elect, but they're exiles. They're those who are uh, outside the boundary, so to speak, of their culture. It's like they're foreigners in their own land. They're not living in a foreign land. They're living in their own land. But because of their worldview and their lifestyle, because of their following Jesus Christ, it has put them outside the norm of their culture. And this letter has been written to help people who are being resisted for their faith, who are suffering in various ways, uh, to live faithfully and fruitfully in their world. And now what he's going to do in chapter 5 is he's going to give them kind of a final word on several topics. They don't seem initially to relate to one another, but they really do when you think about the context. They are all aspects of what it means to live faithfully and fruitfully for the Lord when you find yourself on the margins, when you, when you find yourself pushed towards the outside. So he's going to have a closing word here to the elders. He's going to give a closing word on humility. He's going to give a closing word about the devil. And then he's going to give a closing word on grace. So these are kind of the closing thoughts that, that are, are final applications of all that he has written about. So we're going to take it chunk by chunk, first of all, with a closing word to the elders. So this is uh, 1 Peter 5, and we're going to look first at verses 1 through 4. Listen to God's uh, holy word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." A closing word to the elders. Now, he's not addressed them before until this spot in the letter. So I want to ask a few questions and then answer my own questions uh, about what he's communicating here in this word to the elders. First of all, who are the elders? Well, the elders are uh, those who have the office of elders, those who lead on a plural uh, leadership team, a plural group of elders in the church. And the term elder is used 
um, sort of interchangeably with the term pastor or the term overseer in the New Testament. Now, we could look at some other places and see how that same term, those same terms are used synonymously, but we find it in our own passage here. He says, I exhort the elders, verse 1, and then in verse 2, he gives us the other two titles, yet he does so in verb form. He says, shepherd the flock of God, verse 2, that is among you. Um, Now, the verb shepherd and the noun for that are the same. They're both shepherd, right? But the word can be translated pastor as well. A pastor is a shepherd. And then it says, exercising oversight. Well, that would be what an overseer does. And so that's the title of this particular role. Uh, When it comes to this role, Paul gives us a detailed uh, description of what qualifies a person for this role. And what's interesting is that each of the character qualifications or each of the qualifications for the elders uh, are all character qualifications uh, except one. So we really find out a lot about who these people are supposed to be, what they are like. We find out less about what they do, more about what they are to be like. The only non-character qualification for the elder that Paul writes about is that they must be apt to teach. And so what that tells us is that the role they fulfill in the church is not merely a leadership role. It is a role that is tied to the Scripture. They are to shepherd with the Scripture. They are to oversee with the Scripture. So the elders are qualified, recognized leaders who serve the congregation by shepherding and overseeing with the Word of God. They use the Word of God. Well, what do they do? That's who they are. What do they do? Well, we kind of already hit on that. Verse 2, they shepherd the flock and they exercise oversight. To shepherd, the verb means to tend sheep. No surprise there. It means to tend sheep. And how did a shepherd tend or care for sheep? Well, a shepherd uh, would feed the sheep, would uh, protect the sheep from wolves, would guide and lead the sheep from pasture to pasture, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, in the same way, that's what these elders do, though they do so as sheep themselves. So it's sheep uh, with sheep, teaching sheep, protecting sheep, that sort of thing. Earlier in the letter, in chapter 2, verse 25, Peter has already spoken of Jesus uh, with these same terms we find in verse 2, shepherd the flock and exercise oversight. In chapter 2, verse 25, Peter says that Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus faithfully cares for his sheep, and the elders, therefore, serve as under-shepherds of the great shepherd. They protect the, the, they protect the church, they feed the church, they guide the church by pointing them to Jesus. They don't point them to themselves, but they are under-shepherds of Christ in his role to care for the people of God. So they do that with the Word. With the Word, they feed the sheep. With the Word, they protect the sheep from false doctrine. They protect the sheep from false believers, those who would be wolves coming in to harm God's people. And it's so important in this context that the church have faithful shepherds. It's always important. But in the context of 1 Peter, uh, they are living in a chaotic world. They are living in a world where uh, there is pushback for their faith, It's affecting their family relationships. Some people may be losing their jobs. 
Uh, some people are being, uh, you know, resisted in all kinds of ways. They're, they're being slandered, the, the book tells us. Uh, they're being insulted, the book tells us. So there's a number of different things going on here. So it's very important that there be a healthy church, that the people who are experiencing pushback in their lives can come together in a healthy environment and grow and receive support and care from the people of God. And for that to happen, there needs to be elders who are faithful in shepherding and guarding and leading. They also exercise oversight, it says, which means they walk, they, they watch over the life of the church. They don't micromanage people's lives or any such thing, but they, they watch over the life of the church. They, they oversee the leaders. They oversee the ministries to ensure that all of God's people can flourish in the community of believers. That's what they do. Well, why do they do this? I think this is an important point that, that Peter's making here, and probably the main reason he's addressing the elders is because he wants to ensure that they not only do the right thing, but they do it for the right reason. And that is, that is so critical. It's not just uh, serve the Lord, but it's serve the Lord with the right motive. That's true for all of us. God wants us to serve him with the right heart. And that's what he talks about next, why they do it. He exhorts them uh, using three contrasts that touch on their motive. So he says in verse uh, 2, you exercise oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So he's saying you, you don't exercise this responsibility that God has given you because you have to, but because you get to. It's not under compulsion. You're not to be motivated by obligation. And that could be a temptation. When, when things are difficult and it's wearying and people are suffering, the, the temptation could be to just go through the motions. And he's saying, I don't want you to just go through the motions with my people just because you've got to do it and you've always done it. I want you to do it willingly with a heart that loves the sheep just like Christ does. Next, he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You see that in verse 2? Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, serve God's people not for what you get out of it, but because you love them. You love the Lord and you love his people. Shameful gain probably means doing what they do for remuneration. Likely many of them, perhaps not all of them, but many of them may have been remunerated, paid for their services, paid for their labor uh, so that they could give themselves to caring for the flock. Uh, But he says, don't do it for any reason of self-gain. Do it eagerly out of love for them. And finally, in verse 3, he says, not, exercise oversight, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. These leaders are given authority by the Lord, and they're given authority by the church to lead, but they aren't to abuse that authority. They aren't to domineer. They're not to lead by virtue of a title or a role or a position. Rather, they are to lead through their example. They're not to be coercive or domineering. They're to lead through their life. They're to say, follow me as I follow the Lord. They're they're fellow sheep. And so they're to lead sheep as a fellow sheep. They're not driving cattle. They're leading sheep that are precious to God, and they're doing so as a sheep. So they're to lead by personal example. Uh, on the, when, when there's not a personal example, when the leadership is not by Christ-like character, but the leadership is by domineering others, 
uh, there's great damage. Entitled, domineering leaders, pastors do tremendous damage to the church. And so here he's saying, I want you to provide a godly example. Because by providing a godly example, that builds, God will build a godly church. And godly churches are needed in dark days. Motivation matters is what he's saying here. It's not just checking the boxes for any of us of fulfilling Christian responsibilities. We're not just doing duties. We're to be motivated in our callings to serve the Lord willingly, eagerly, and seeking to do so by example. So really this applies to all of us. The elders are to fulfill their calling as willing and eager pastors who provide a godly example, especially in dark days as this, these early churches in Asia Minor were living in. You know, I want to pause here and just make an appeal to you, and it would be that you would pray for the elders in our church, as the four of us that were just praying uh, for the two new deacons. But I ask that you pray for us. Not only that we'd be faithful and do what we're supposed to do, but that we would do it with godly motives, that God would guard our hearts, that God would ensure that we are ever growing and living in our relationship with him, with our relationship with our families and with one another and with the people in the church, and that we would be faithful in uh, our motivations, that they would be eager, willing, godly motivations. And while you're praying for us, I pray you would do that. Pray for yourself as well, because we're all to serve. Say, Lord, purify my heart that I might serve you, not only in the right way, but for the right reason. A word to the elders, because as they are strong and lead with the scripture, pointing people to the great shepherd, so the church will be strong in days of difficulty. Secondly, he gives a closing word on humility in verses 5 to 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you." The call to humility starts with the young. You'll notice here he sort of singles them out. Uh, You young folks, he says here, be subject to the elders. Uh, Young people have a lot of energy and a lot of vision to serve the Lord. They have a lot of ideas they presume to be better. And so it's wise for young people to have all the energy to serve the Lord passionately, but to do so reflecting um, a need for leaders in our lives, to the young in particular. So he addresses them, be subject to the elders. In this book, there has been a lot of be subject language that when times are difficult, in particular, God says the way the church stands out as a light in the darkness is we submit ourselves to all of the authorities God has placed. You remember he said, even be subject to governing authorities, honor the emperor. Even though their emperor, Nero, was a mess, yet they were to honor him. So he gives all these categories, honoring and being subject to those God has placed in our lives. is a, 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 a rare, increasingly rare, but vital uh, Christian characteristic that, that points to the Lord Jesus Christ who submitted himself as well. 
Well, he calls the church more broadly, not just the young, but he goes on to say, beyond the young, all of you, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So as you're relating together, clothe yourself with humility. What does that mean? Well, the the word translated clothe yourself, it's interesting, it can be translated tie on, tie on. It referred to a servant who would tie on an apron when ready to serve. It's a vivid picture, isn't it? When you're among the people of God and you're relating with one another, wear this, wear this attitude. See yourself as tying on an apron ready to serve other people. Uh, That is how all the people of God are to relate to one another, not promoting oneself, not looking out for one's own interest, but coming with an apron tied on. Maybe you're not doing any practical service. Maybe it's just conversation. But even there, tying the apron on means I'm listening, means I'm taking an interest, means I'm not just looking for my opportunity to say my thing, but I'm really trying to Uh, understand and know another person. I'm listening for needs and looking to act. It's living in the body of Christ with an apron tied on. It's, It's wearing humility in the way we speak with one another, wearing a humble attitude posturing ourselves as a servant. And when we do that, it's, he gives this promise, this blessing that comes along with it. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So for a church that was stru- suffering as they were, uh, he says, listen, there's the way to receive the help you need from God is to humble yourself because God gives grace to the humble. That is, God gives aid. He gives help. God gives power and strength and wisdom. He gives us what we need as we are in the posture of humbling ourselves before him and humbling ourselves in the, relate, in the way we relate with one another. It's really telling, isn't it? That as I relate to you and as I relate to the Lord humbly, I find the strength I need for the challenges I face. But the opposite of that promised blessing is also true. He not only gives aid to the humble, but he resists the proud, which would be a frightening thing in their circumstances. It's a frightening thing for us. But to live their daily lives in this context where they're constantly being resisted for their faith, and then to find that God is resisting them as well, rather than being resisted by the world, but finding strength in God and in the community of believers. He's saying here that God will resist people that are proud, that are about themselves, that are self-oriented rather than others-oriented. And next he gives this unexpected way that we could humble ourselves. So he says, humble yourself before one another. Then in verse 6, he says, humble yourselves before God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Okay, then he gives this out-of-the-blue way that we humble ourselves before God. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is the practical application that he offers here in this word, this closing word on humility, that we are to cast our anxieties on him. I'm sure this church was filled with anxious people, just like our church. We're filled with anxious people. We all know what it's like to be anxious. And there can be many causes for anxiety. 
Anxiety may even be a medical or psychological condition for some of us, and I'm not really talking about that here, uh, though I think there's something relevant here. I'm not really addressing that. Uh, I'm addressing the anxiety that most of us, no, not most, that all of us experience in life. Generally speaking, for most of us, most anxiety is tied to pride. That's what this passage teaches. That's what the verse teaches. He says, humble yourself, verse 6. How do you do that? Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If humility is casting my care on him, pride is hanging on to my anxieties and cares. It's, it's embracing them myself. It's saying, I, I, I must solve this problem on my own. It's the sort of self-sufficient attitude in life that doesn't take every anxiety and cast it on the Lord, but hangs on to it ourselves. Pride hangs on to things that should be entrusted to the Lord, things that we can't change, but only He can change, things that are outside of our control. Those things are to be entrusted to the Lord. Actually, things inside our control, quote-unquote, in our control, those things should be entrusted to the Lord as well. This is such an important truth for folks who are finding themselves at odds with their culture, finding themselves on a different place, and it almost feels like at times a different world than the world we live in. That's where we all live. We live at, at odds in various ways because we believe something different. We believe Jesus Christ is Lord and that He is the only way and that He provides satisfaction of soul and life eternal. So because of that, we're pushed to the margins at various times. And so with that, He's saying, cast those burdens, cast your sufferings, cast your worries upon the Lord. To cast, well, it means to throw or to toss. That's what it literally means. And so it is, it is the tossing of our burdens onto the Lord. You know how many of us live? I certainly know this experience. It's like we live with a backpack, and we're walking around life with a backpack that's just filled with worries. It's, it's just filled up with family worries, financial worries. It's just got stuff in there, health worries, extended family worries, It's got job worries. Some of those are huge. And we're just living with this weighted backpack. It's like we're in our souls. We're like walking around like this, mulling over. We're meditating is what we're doing. We're meditating on the problem with very little view of God, who, by the way, it says here, he cares for you. And what what Peter is saying is he's saying that we need to reach into the backpack and one by one, Take the anxiety, the worry, the burden, and throw it on the Lord. That's where it belongs. He is the one that carries it. Now, we also carry one another's burdens in a sense. That means we come alongside one another, we encourage, we pray, we provide practical help where we can, um, we help one another look to the Lord. But ultimately, to bear someone else's burden, we're gonna, the answer is for them to find relief in Jesus. We're going to have to point them to the Lord. And so he says, we are to cast our cares on him for he cares for us. Now, some of you listening to me will surely think this sounds 
overly simplistic. It's not simplistic, but it is simple. It is simple. It's simple, but it is not easy. What this text writes and calls us to do is not easy. It's not a one-time, okay, can I just take the backpack off and cast all my cares once on him, and then I'm done for life? No, because very quickly we'll pick the backpack back up, and I may feel okay today, but my temptation is tomorrow to throw the burdens, throw the worries, throw the anxieties back on myself. Our our self-sufficiency is so deeply ingrained, so deeply ingrained in us that worry and burden and anxiety, that just feels like normal life to us. Some of us are so weighed down, it, it doesn't even feel, we've walked like this looking at the ground for so long that we don't even know any other way. We just think that's how you live instead of standing up with a light burden from the Lord and looking to him. We, we can't even imagine some of us. And that's why though this is simple, it's not easy. It involves regularly, daily, sometimes hourly, at times when the thoughts keep coming, perhaps multiple times in an hour, going through the process of casting our care on him and meditating on who he is, realizing that he cares for us. We, we will never be totally free of worry until the return of Jesus or our deaths, whichever comes first. But I don't believe God's design is for us to live a life characterized by anxiety, weighted down by things that he calls us to give to him because he cares for us. That is a denial of his care. It is a denial of his faithfulness to bear our burdens, to settle for that life. I believe that we can, little by little, it may be slow, very slow, but I believe little by little God wants us to increasingly live a lifestyle where we are humbling ourselves, recognizing the burdens and cares that we carry, and directly casting them on Him, trusting Him, until the periods of time gets, get longer and longer before we grab them back. You know, we just, uh, you know, I, it used to be, okay, 60 seconds later, I've grabbed it back. <laughs> you know, or I'm starting to toss it, but I just halfway in the middle of the toss, hang on to it. But where that grows, where my lifestyle more and more is seeing God as he is, seeing his character, his love, his care for me, what he's done for me in the cross and resurrection, his faithfulness to me, and then beginning to live a lifestyle where more and more I see him. I really believe what I say I believe. I really in my soul believe that he is sovereign. And if he is, he's got this under control. And now my heart and my mind are starting to live that out in a practical, functional way by casting my burdens and leaving them with the Lord. Don't give up my responsibility. We're responsible to do certain things, but the outcome and the results of everything we do are left in the hand of God, not for us to meditate and worry about. Over time, it becomes more natural by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Over time, it becomes more natural for us to humble ourselves cast our cares on him, and walk in freedom. What a promise to these people who live in a chaotic world, a fiery trial, he calls it. May God help us humble ourselves with the burdens of our lives, the burdens of those we love, the burdens of our culture, the burdens of our nation, the burdens of our world. 
They would cast those over on the Lord. Next, he gives a closing word after the, after the elders, after a closing word on humility, he gives a closing word on the devil. Verses 8 through 11. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God calls the believers, us, to, verse 8, be sober-minded, to be watchful. What does that mean? Well, he's saying to be on the watch for your adversary, the devil. He's prowling around and be aware of him. Now, there's kind of two extremes that Christians can take when it comes to talk of the devil. Uh, we can move in a direction that we just overly emphasize the devil, always talking about spiritual warfare, always rebuking Satan, always blaming demons for everything that happens, just living a word that's, world that's so hyper-aware of darkness that we have less and less focus on Jesus Christ. And that's a dangerous way to live. That's actually giving Satan far more power than he has and more attention than he deserves. On the other side, this especially could be true in reform circles, is that we just ignore the devil. That's the other extreme. We act like he doesn't exist. We act as if all of our problems are from the world and the flesh. But that passage says our problems come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we can just ignore him. We need a balanced and a biblical view. Juan Sanchez, who's written the commentary that we have out in the Resource Center, I think strikes a biblical balance when he writes the following. He says, the devil is a real foe, but he's a defeated foe. He is a great, he is a real threat, but he is a limited threat. He is on a leash, and he can only do what God permits him to do, and God has granted us grace to resist him. He's saying he's a real foe, and so you need to be watchful. He's saying that, look, the devil is, in fact, uh, a, a real threat, so be sober-minded and alert. Don't go to sleep on the devil, he's saying. Be alert to his tactics and his schemes, but also realize that he is defeated, that, uh, that we have the grace to resist him says, resist him. We have the power to do that in Jesus Christ. Well, what are his tactics? I think he tells us two things, and they're found in his name. He says that we are to be sober-minded and watchful for your adversary, the devil. There's the two names. Prowls around. The word adversary here means accuser, someone who brings accusation. Romans, uh, Revelation 12 says that Satan is the accuser of the brothers. His power is in bringing accusation. Uh, he can't really uh, ultimately harm you in the way that, he, uh, that we think he can sometimes, but he can bring accusations. Now, how does that happen? The context here of the whole book is people who are suffering. How does the enemy turn into an adversary or live out his role as an adversary when we are suffering? Well, he accuses us. He accuses us. When we begin to suffer, when we're in a trial, when it's difficult, we start hearing 
a voice. You know what? You're just going through this because you're not really godly. If you really love the Lord, you know the other people in the church, the ones who really love the Lord, they're not facing the same thing. You're facing it because you don't really love the Lord. You're not really, who are you kidding? You're not really right with God. If you were right with God, none of this would be happening. But certainly God must be pretty disappointed in you. You're like a nuisance to him. Keep doing the same stuff over and over. You know what? We begin to be accused of our own failures tied to suffering. If you had enough faith, this wouldn't be going on. You just need to believe more. But you don't believe enough, and you've never been good at faith. You're sorry at faith. And so that's why all of this is happening. Be watchful for the accusations of the enemy, especially in suffering. He also calls him the devil, your adversary, the devil. The word devil means deceiver. And so that's why it says he, he prowls around like a roaring lion. He's not a, actually a roaring lion that's going to engulf you, going to eat you, but he prowls and acts like he is because his game is deception. This is how it began at the beginning of the Bible. He, the devil goes into the garden, and he tempts uh, Eve to question God. Did God really say? He's deceiving her. He's deceiving her to say that God said there'll be consequences if you eat off the tree, but did he really say that? He just doesn't want you to know uh, all that he knows about good and evil. And so he deceives. He, he tells things that aren't true. He holds something out as an answer that God forbids, that the fruit of the tree will give you something wonderful. You'll be like God. And so the enemy deceives us all along. Just give up your faith. All this suffering would go away if you'd give up your faith. Some of their suffering would go away if they gave up their faith. They'd no longer be persecuted as Christians if they gave it up. But he's saying that if you just go back to the old life, you'll be happy. You'll find satisfaction. If you, you, a little compromise here or there, it's going to be fine, is what he tells us all. He prowls around like a roaring lion. His, his, he doesn't have legitimate power for us, he, over us. He uses accusation and he uses deception. Here's some other things he tells us, and I think Peter is addressing them in the text. He tells us this, you're the only one suffering. Nobody else is suffering like you are. That's deception. Look what he says in the text, verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing, how do you resist the devil in suffering? Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not experiencing something unique. You're not being picked upon. I mean, your circumstances may be different than others, but people throughout the world are all experiencing the same kind of sufferings as believers in Jesus Christ, the same types of suffering. So you're not alone. He also tells us God doesn't really love you if you're suffering. And yet, verse 7, he said, cast your, the Bible says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In the very text where we're told to resist the devil, we're told, be alert to the care of God. Know that the enemy will try to deceive you, yet realize that he cares for you. You are not alone. Another lie, deception, the enemy tells us in suffering is that this is endless. This will go on forever. Now, until Christ returned, there will be suffering. But this particular suffering is endless. But look at what Peter tells them in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who has called you by His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's not endless. It's a little while. Even if it lasts the rest of your life, when Christ returns or when you die and you see Christ and you are with Him, it will feel like a little while. We just don't have the full scope. We're living with what's been happening the last year, five years, 10 years, 20 years. Maybe this particular suffering's gone on for 30 or 40 or 50 years. So we just have this small window of experience. It's our whole life. It's all we got. But compared to eternity, it's just a little while. And the Lord may do this before you die or he returns. You, you, you may ex- be restored and strengthened. You will be strengthened. But you may be established the way you were before the suffering came. That may all happen tomorrow. The suffering may last a week or a month. It may not last longer than that. But even if it lasts longer, relatively, relative to eternity, it is only a little while. What a great word to people who were experiencing the resistance of a hostile culture that that, that was uh, empowered by the evil one. Those who oppress and those who reject the believers, they're animated by the evil one. He wants them to know that, but this will only happen for a little while. Listen to this verse from Romans 16 that is so encouraging. I love this verse that just gives us a sense of hope. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He he will be done away with. It is only a little while. The suffering is a little while, and God is not done with you. He will establish, confirm, strengthen, and restore you. Restoration is coming, friend. I remember a, a time in my life where I was walking through, I've shared this before with the church, but where I was walking through a dark night of the soul uh, because of some family trials a number of years ago, uh, and I was just walking through a deep darkness and discouragement bordering on hopeless in my heart and in my life. And I remember, I remember where I was standing when he said it. I remember Rob, one of our pastors here, Rob, giving me this word that is so simple, but it's stuck with me all these years, and I've shared it with others. And he just simply said to me, the story isn't over. That's what this passage is saying. It's a little while. It feels like everything, but it's not the whole story. The story's not older. over. The restoration is coming. The establishment is coming. The confirmation and the strengthening that he talks about here, it's a little while, but God's going to do all that for you. And I feel like there's someone in the room today that needs to hear that. You feel like this is endless. That is the deception of the enemy. Be alert. The Word of God says it's a little while, and then Jesus himself will restore you. How encouraging is that for all of us? He closes the book with a closing word on grace, verses 12 to 14. About Silvanus A faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. 
So this is the wrap-up. Silvanus, he's faithful. He's delivering the letter to you. Mark, he sends his greeting. She who is at Babylon, that sounds mysterious. Babylon is the host culture for those who are in exile. So in the Old Testament, Babylon is the land where Israel lived. So who is the host culture for their exile? It's Rome. They're under the Roman Empire. So she who is at Rome greets you. Who's she? Probably the church. The church in Rome is also chosen, greets you as well. And then he says, this whole book has been about this. I have written exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand in it. The true grace of God, the grace of God is what God has done for us, not what we do for ourselves. And so he's saying, stand in the work of God. Stand in what the Lord has done for you. Stand firmly. Don't give ground. Don't give up. Don't give ground. Don't give up. You are elect exiles. You are chosen by God. God is using you. It is through the fire that God is molding and purifying your faith and is giving testimony to a watching world. Stay on God. Stand on his grace. And then he closes with a benediction of peace. That last line, how beautiful is this? After all the turmoil they've been in, after all the difficulty, he leaves them with this, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace. The the gospel produces peace. The gospel brings peace between us and God. The gospel brings peace to our soul. The gospel can bring peace between one another, between us together. The fruit of the gospel is peace in our lives. Stand firm in his grace and you will find peace. That's what he leaves with us. Stand firm in grace and you will find peace. The church has peace. Think of chapter 5. The church has peace when the leaders shepherd with godly care and lead by example. The church has peace when we all uh, relate to one another with humility. My life has peace when I cast my anxieties on him, for he cares for me. We have peace when we are watchful and attuned and discerning to the lies of the enemy, and we filter out the deception and believe the truth of God. We have peace when we know as bad as it is, it's only for a little while, and the promise of God is that he will restore us. So stand firm on the grace of God. The gospel produces peace. Peace be with you. That's where he ends. He starts your your elect exiles. He ends with the peace of God be with you. You're exactly where you're supposed to be as an exile in a world that opposes Christ. So be at peace, stand firm in his grace, and live a faithful and fruitful life for his glory and by his grace. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. 